Hey awesome people, a huge welcome to the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. We're so happy to have you back for the second season. Uh, we're trying out a few new things this season, including short episodes, so you can listen to the full extended length version of this interview on our website, projectlantern.com.au. Uh, but without further ado, here's our interview with Fedek Al-Fayed, the centre of the Meet Fedek campaign, aiming to shift the narrative on the refugee experience. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Fedek. I'm a lawyer, I'm a writer, and I'm a community advocate. Um, and I'm running the Meet Fedek uh, project, which is um, me travelling around Victoria and later around Australia to tell my story of seeking asylum here in Australia, to remind people of the welcome that I felt when I came here and how we have forgotten this welcome and that we don't see as much of it as we see today in our, our public discourse. So uh, what, what inspired you to uh, create this campaign? Um, I've always been passionate about social justice. So gr growing up in a family that was always quite um, uh, re resistant and um, active politically and socially, um, I grew up with values of, you know, seeking justice and fairness. Um, these values led me to pursue a career in, in law and particularly practising community law, so helping people who are marginalised, um, who can't access the law or pay for lawyers, mm. um, people from various different marginalised backgrounds. Um, and obviously I am definitely always have always been passionate about the refugee issue being from that background. Mm. And I worked in the space um, in campaigning and advocacy for some time. And I saw the, the change in how we talk about refugees and how those negative stereotypes have become normalised um, and how it, it has become easier to um, treat people who seek asylum um, with indignity and um, uh, uh, with discrimination simply because the, the stereotypes have continued to live on are not as easily or often as uh, as often challenged, yeah. um, especially in the public discourse. And I, I saw the difference between what we see in our media and our policy versus what we see on, on the ground. Mm. So on the ground, there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of Australians who care about refugees, who want to close offshore detention, who want to resettle um, more people seeking asylum in the community. But, and that was, although that was a majority, we saw the opposite in the public discourse because we have particular people, um, you know, in control of um, major media outlets um, and, and in politics. So mm. there's a huge divide there. Um, and I really wanted to make the cause more accessible. So I wanted to, um, you know, with storytelling, you can engage um, people who might might not be as engaged with other forms of advocacy. Um, so it, it is quite a powerful tool to reach people who um, aren't as politically savvy or don't have as much time or prefer to be engaged online rather than in person. Yeah, so... It, it's been really, really good so far, um, and I, I've met with people who, you know, I never thought would be interested in in this issue, um, and um, yeah, you know, I've gotten support from other refugee communities, like communities who 
have come, you know, a few generations ago, you know, after World War II, um, or communities that have recently arrived and just a variety of people who are really happy to see something like this uh, taking place, yeah. In terms of enacting that, that policy change, you, you talked about the kind of disconnect between the public and the people who have the decision-making power. How do you kind of practically go about that through the campaign? I believe that the way society thinks, public discourse and the, uh, our values as a, as a society always affect what we do in policy and vice versa. So it is really essential that we do change the policy towards the refugees and people seeking asylum. Otherwise, it is affecting how we feel about those communities. Mm. And whether we like it or not, that's going to happen. And I, the opposite is also true. If we change how people think about asylum seekers and refugees and racialized communities, then we are going to eventually have a change in policy and that's more permanent right. than the other alternative. For me, as someone who has not as many resources um, like bigger organisations that can create policy change, um, just because of where I'm direct placed at the moment, uh, where I see my strengths is changing that public discourse mm. and be, being part of uniting people who have those values um, and engaging more people who have those values but are not as engaged mm. um, so that they can be more of um, like a desire or um, energy to want to be engaged in policy change. Right. So my theory of change essentially yeah. is, <laughs> you know, engaging people who are seen as sitting on the fence um, through mobilising people who are on my side right. and to get them really excited and energised about um, the refugee issue and, or, and helping people seeking asylum. Through hearing my story, through seeing a person who has once been through been through that journey, you know, putting a name to, to, to the headlines, you know, putting, seeing a face to, to the issue and, you know, humanising it because it has been dehumanised for so long. And as a result, um, you, you know, actually just see people seeking asylum as people. When you sort of started initially sharing your story with the public, did you at all find that difficult? Because I guess you're sort of opening up something that's so personal to you and which I can imagine has some very painful memories with it as well. Or did you almost find it after a few times, it almost became sort of liberating and a source of strength. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. It was definitely both. I was, you know, I was so scared to talk about my experience. And I remember when I first wrote the story that I wanted to tell. And I just wanted, initially, like, wanted to talk about all the, the difficulties that I went through and all the trauma that I went through and... And then I sat back and I read it and I was like, whoa, this is, this is really intense. Who's going to want to hear this? <laughs> you know? And, um, but although it was interesting, it might make for a great novel or something, but it's, it's not, it's not, you know, exciting. And it won't, it's not going to bring people to, to my events. And then I sat back and thought about, well, what of who have I come out to be as a result of what I went through? I wanted to talk about the positive stuff instead Obviously, recognizing that there's some difficult things that have happened, but there were, you know, really, really good things that have come out of it. And because I wanted to remind people of the welcome that I felt when I arrived and the welcome that I felt throughout my settlement process, there's no use in talking about all of the bad stuff, which does exist, but I, yeah. 
And as soon as I started talking about the story and having people come out and listen to it, having people care about it or empathise or relate to it and have, have gone through personal things that are, have been very similar, it was really, really powerful. And I felt it almost was like a healing process that I didn't expect would happen. And definitely liberating, as, as you uh, suggested. But it has its challenges, yeah. And I've had to sort of set boundaries for myself as to, there, you know, there are some things that I wouldn't talk about. You know, I don't want to include my family into the, the story or, or into my campaigning and photos and things like that. Yeah, just to make it more sustainable for me and to, to make sure that I look after myself in the process. But it's it's been really so far so good. It's been more powerful than anything that I've ever done. Yeah, I'm just so surprised at how many people it has brought together and how many people it has engaged with online, like thousands and thousands of people, um, which is, yeah, has been more powerful than any other type of advocacy that I've done before. We, we kind of skipped over this bit, but would you mind sharing a bit about your, your journey to Australia and a bit about your story? So we arrived in Australia in late 2003 after the invasion of Iraq. When we were in Iraq, we lived in Baghdad, which is the capital city. And I remember being a child and sort of hearing the adults around me, you know, talking about the Americans who were going to come to Iraq. And, you know, sometimes they would talk about it as if it was a rumour and it's not going to happen, but sometimes they were like panicking and I could see the looks of panic and it was you know a couple of months later that it started to develop into constant stress and constant panic that we were going to be under an invasion and I started to see things on TV change a little bit more because at the time we lived in a dictatorship so it was controlled media you can you can only have like state-sponsored media you couldn't have media from outside Iraq. You know, there were a lot more military things on TV and in preparation of the invasion and that we were going to fight people and so on and so forth. But I mean, as a child in Iraq, we were constantly exposed to military style things on TV and, and in real life as part of the whole dictatorship propaganda. And then my, f I remember my mum started to you know, buy like non-perishable foods that we can have in the house and that we can store. I remember having like a well dug in our front garden so that we could have um, water. And that was a good idea because we did, um, the water was and electricity were both cut um, during during the invasion. And so, yeah, we, you know, we, we were ready for the war to happen. And, and I remember we were just living in times of uncertainty. Like we didn't have access to any sort of news that were that was objective and that was telling us what actually was going to happen. On our state TV, it was just saying, "Oh, everything is going good. We're going to fight the Americans. They, they're going, they're going to go back to where they came from, and we're going to be all good." But we we kind of had doubts about that. You know, America is a superpower, and you know it, it had all of its NATO allies coming with them. So it was doubtful that we were going to come out of this alive. And my family lived in a, in a suburb that was quite affluent, so it had a lot of ministers from uh, Saddam's ministry who were living in that suburb. So we were, we were very worried that that suburb in particular would be attacked. So when the invasion started, we couldn't stay in that, sub, in that suburb anymore and we had to flee to another, another state. In, in Iraq that was in the south. So we became what is known as um, internally displaced people for a while um, just because we couldn't live in our home anymore. And we did come back to a home that was 
destroyed. Not completely, it was still something, you know, we could still live in it, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the windows were shattered and the front part of it was shattered because, in fact, a house in our street was also bombed. And, I mean, I remember going through times of fighting and and bombing and, uh, you know, as a child experiencing that, it, it, you know, was really, really frightening. And there were, you know, there was our family and a number of other families who had fled. And remember, we were hiding under the stairs whilst, you know, uh, the, the bombs were taking place because there was no shelter around. And it just kept happening for hours and hours and hours. Um, and we just had to live through it. And we didn't think that we would make it. It was, you know, it was scary and it, it was, t- you know, happening everywhere. And we didn't think that we would live through it, but, but we did. And after the invasion finished... We came back to a house that was damaged heavily, but we tried to go back to normal life. A few weeks after that, you know, I went to school, my mum went to work and my sister went to her school as well. But it was just not very, not livable. And although the invasion had finished, there was a lot of resistance to the Americans. There was constant fighting and it was just, it was really, really unsafe to, to live in Iraq at the time. But we, we had my dad living in Australia at that point. My dad had a different journey to us. So my dad fled Iraq in the late 90s. So he fled because he was conscripted in Saddam's army as an army doctor. But he he knew that that would entail, you know, committing torture or covering up torture as that would, you know, happen quite often. So he, he fled Iraq and he eventually made his way um, to Australia by boat. And he was in detention for about a year and then he was let out. So at the time that we escaped, our all we were displaced in Iraq. He was living in Australia and he had just received his permanent residency. I consider my, my family really lucky because we were able to apply for a family reunion and come to Australia through my dad. But it took some time. So although he applied for us, you know, as the invasion was going to happen, it didn't um, come through until later that year. So we couldn't live in Iraq anymore and we became refugees in Jordan, which is a neighbouring country to Iraq. And, you know, as children, like, we didn't go to school and we missed out on a lot of schooling. Um, We were just sort of just in limbo, just sitting there waiting to be accepted. But luckily we did and we were able to come to Australia and we've been here since... Yeah, through, through family reunion. And sometimes it makes me really sad that family reunion visas don't exist anymore for people who have arrived by boat. So if I had come to Australia 10 years after I did, or if my dad had come to Australia 10 years after he did, I would be on an offshore camp somewhere, you know? And it's, yeah, it, it's it's really awful what we are doing to people who have been through some tough times that ironically Australia was involved in but you know we we don't let people reunite and we don't let families um, live, live together. Well it's quite it's quite emotional actually. What was your experience like after you you came to Australia? Uh, coming to Australia was definitely a culture shock. <laughs> Things were really really different. I didn't speak English. So although in, in Iraq you learn English as a second language. I remember we had just started to learn English in school, but I didn't know any words or any phrases apart from really basic numbers, hello and thank you and things like that. But I, I couldn't understand what people were saying to me. Right. And I couldn't 
talk to people. So I remember first days of school, people were saying things like, I, I don't remember what they were saying, but <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. And, and oftentimes I replied in Arabic and they were like, what? <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely very, very different. I was always someone who loved school and I, you know, I really wanted to excel and that was something that, you know, in my culture it's very important. So I found it really hard to, to do my schooling just because things were in a completely different language. And I had always been really good at maths and really good at writing, but I really struggled to keep up. Yeah, just because of it was completely new and different. And things like using a computer was brand new because <laughs> I had seen computers on TV, but we didn't have computers. And I think that was part of the dictatorship and controlling people and, you know, you can't have internet kind of thing. Yeah. But look, other than that, it was, it was a really positive experience. Uh, although I couldn't communicate <laughs> in school, like, people were still very, very welcoming. You know, I would share my food with, with, with students and, and, and teachers sometimes. Um, and, you know, there was a huge, a lot of exchange of cultures and um, that kind of thing. And when we arrived, we, were, we lived in Dandenong, which is one of the, you know, a highly multicultural uh, suburb in Melbourne. And I remember in my class, I had kids from... Um, you know, Serbia, uh, Afghanistan, Albania, um, uh, the Congo and just different parts of the world. And it was just really beautiful to see that not only had I gone through conflict and come to a place of, of welcome and a place where I, I can belong, but I, there are other people who have gone through very similar journeys and other young people as well. So for a long time, I was worried that I would be this weird kid who, you know, didn't speak the language and has, had come from, you know, a, a really bad place. But I think seeing other students who've been through similar things made, made it a lot easier. And I remember my school being like the foundation to my, my settlement process in Australia and for me, for, for, you know, living a fulfilled life and being able to belong a lot more. So, you know, and it, it's really powerful learning a new language and, and having those tools to speak English and to be able to express yourself in, in English. And not, not having that for a long time was, was a huge struggle, but I, my school was like a big part of, of my settlement process and making me feel like I, I belong and that I am welcomed here and that... You know, it doesn't matter what I went through, it's, it's what I'm doing now. What do you think people can do if they have a refugee or someone who's newly arrived or a migrant in, in their local community or school to kind of help with that transition? Look, every family and every refugee will probably have different needs, but I think... Now, I want to give it a story to, right. uh, as an example. So as part of the Meet Feta project, we, um, I went to meet a group called Welcome to Eltham. So they're a collective who uh, welcomed about 200 individuals from Syria and Iraq who had sought asylum here and were resettled on a humanitarian program. And as they, as they were coming to be resettled in Eltham, there was a right-wing group not from Eltham often not from Victoria, who, you know, were rising up and were come, what, what, uh, came to protest the resettlement of refugees. Anyway, long story short, um, the Welcome to Eltham group, group got together and they sort of clashed with that group, but it, 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 in a positive way, just to show that they, you know, they are welcoming of these newly arrived communities in, in their broader community. And I remember when I met with the group, 
and I talked to them about why they were why they did this, you know. Yeah, and I was like, why, why, why do you care? And why, why would you go out of your way to do that? Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see, but I wanted to see why people cared so much. And, but also, like, what, what were they doing? So in that community, like, what, what were you doing to fill in the time and what were you doing to help in that settlement process, like you asked? And I think that uh, has stayed with me is one of the founders of the group said, you know, we would do this to anyone. So anyone coming and moving to Eltham, we would go up to their house and, you know, bake them cookies or muffins and we would say hello and invite them for a cup of tea. And doing this to those, those families was just the same thing. You know, it didn't, it didn't matter to us where they had come from. They were moving to Eltham and to our community and that's what we wanted to do because that's what we do to everybody else. And that, was, that really was so powerful to me because there was people, you know, going out of their way to, to break down the fear that is surrounding the issue and surrounding them and surrounding everybody around, you know, there's people from the Middle East who are different to us. Yeah, and I, I just want to, I mean, I, I'm saying that story because it's, it's really, really powerful. And I've seen it reflected in, in the work that I do in other communities as well. So, you know, I've been to Bendigo and I've been to Albury and Wodonga. And, you know, these communities where, you know, some of them might be regional and remote, but very similar things have happened in, in how people have been resettled and how, how people have been welcomed at a community level. And I, I think that's... That's where the solution lies. The solution is a grassroots solution. It's as soon as we as a community learn to value those who are coming into our community who have sought asylum, just as we value anybody else who moves into our neighbourhood, that's when we break down those stereotypes and we break down the fear that exists. Other than that, <laughs> I think that you know people who are newly arrived will, will need to be empowered and feel like they have the tools to to be resettled. So I think important things to help that process is definitely learning English because that's a huge barrier to getting employment, to um, social life, to your education, to anything that you really want to do. And employment and education or any other opportunities that people want want to embark on, whether it be you know starting a business or uh, investing in something, whatever it is, I think just help people in directing them to certain charities or educational institutions or wherever that they can seek the opportunities that they, that they want. But essentially whatever empowerment tools you you know they need and all that you might think that they need is where I would say is, is probably most powerful and most, most effective in the long term. With the kind of ref- refugee issue, often Sometimes I, I feel when, when you're scrolling through um, social media or when you look at the news, you can see a lot of kind of tragic and horrific images. And sometimes it's, um, I think, easy to become desensitised to the issue. I was just wondering, how do you combat that? Is that about, again, bring it to the individual? I think as advocates, we have seen that people have become quite exhausted. You know, this, this issue, and especially the issue of offshore detention has been going on, going on for about six years. It hasn't changed. It's gone back and forth. And we've done some amazing work, a lot of really, really big and difficult and challenging campaigns. And we almost feel like 
that, you know, it's not going anywhere and we, you know, we, we're fatigued and our supporters are fatigued. But I think as advocates, it's, it's our duty to make sure that we're always being creative and that we're always finding new ways to engage people. For people who are on the outside and who want to get involved but are feeling like there's no solution or there's no way out. I would say as soon as you start thinking this and as soon as you start thinking that this is it, we can't win it, that's when they've won. Mm. So make sure not to, as hard as it could be to, to, to stay, stay on board and to stay connected to the issue, please, please do stay connected because as soon as you walk away from it, that's when... That's when we have lost as a community and that's when we have lost the issue. And I think it, it is a tactic that those in power have inst- installed, you know, just uh, that constant pushback and, and fatigue that we're feeling. It, it's a way of deterring people from coming to Australia. It's a way of deterring us from supporting people who come and, see, and seek asylum in Australia. So I don't think that... It's an accident. It's definitely something that is planned. And for example, we've seen that with the recent cuts to the SRSS cuts to refugee incomes or or constant uh, change in policy and um, whether it be people in offshore detention, onshore detention or in community detention. And it's it's simply to break people. It's simply to deter people from coming to Australia and and to make people want to go back and to voluntarily uh, go back to to their countries. It's as simple as that. And I think for people on the outside, imagine, I mean, if you're giving up, imagine the people who are are going through it. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to feel guilty and to feel bad about being exhausted because it is exhausting but imagine how it feels for people who are going through it right now for the children in detention for families who might be in their community but are not able to get a job are not able to bring the rest of their families to Australia are not able to go on with their lives so I don't think we have the luxury of of getting exhausted whether it be the refugee issue whether it be other issues you know issues with climate change there's no time to to panic and to um take you know take a step back or to feel like we are it's a defeated cause because it isn't and there's always room for change and there and we can always push back against the superpowers both Asanga and I were doing a bit of research around you and sort of your story before we came to this interview I guess every article I sort of found about you I would always see sort of like the word refugee and like the opening line and things like that. And I remember you speaking a little bit earlier before that sort of like the word refugee and things associated with that can have some quite sort of negative connotations. Do you feel that sort of that process is always a way of sort of reclaiming the word and be making sure that the fear is disassociated with it? Or does it sort of still pigeonhole people like yourself as still this refugee despite living here for so many years? And look, I, I don't think I have the answer to be honest. Like. <laughs> It's definitely a word that I want to reclaim and to feel empowered by referring to myself as a refugee because for a long time growing up in Australia, I was quite ashamed of of the word and I would not say that. I would just say that we're migrants and that we came here for a better life and that's it. Never talked about what I went through and what my family went through to be in Australia and to live here. And even now, sometimes I feel a little bit icky when someone says oh this refugee woman because that's what I'm limited to and Mm. you know there's you know people don't see other parts of my identity apart from that and although it's something that 
I want to emphasise and I want to people to see, yes, that I, I was a refugee at some point, but look at where I, who I am now and where I've come to in, in life and that kind of thing. And often there are articles about me who say, refugee woman becomes a lawyer or something like that, you know, and it might sound like a really good headline, but I personally find it a little bit condescending because mm. it's kind of saying, oh, she was just a refugee and, and, you know, things are so great now that she's this hotshot lawyer, you know, and it's kind of like I was not going to be a lawyer if I didn't come to Australia and if I didn't, do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's kind of so like that I was nobody and now I am so great. And that's not the case. What's happened is that I I had a really good life and that something bad happened. And then I came to Australia and I was able a few years later to restart and, and to go back and finish my journey. And that I was always this person, it, it, nothing. I actually had have lost a lot by leaving my country and I've lost a lot by, by going through the pre- process of displacement. Yes, I, I'm very lucky to be in Australia and I... You know, it is my country now, it is where I live now, it is where I'll continue to live the rest of my life. But it's almost, yeah, it is a little bit condescending and I find it really, really limits who I am and who my family is and who I could have been and who who I was before I came to Australia. Yeah, and it, I feel like sometimes it's it's a little bit, it, like it's sort of like a, on a borderline of like racist almost because it's kind of saying, oh, this woman, this Iraqi woman, would have, you know, she, she like, limiting me to thinking that I was this destitute, repressed woman who was just not going to amount to anything and that Australia's opened my eyes or something like that. It's kind of like, well, not really, <laughs> you know. Um, but, again, it, Australia is, is my country now and that's, um, you know, I'm happy to be here and I'm very, very lucky as well. And I think sort of, cause I am conscious of time, but like sort of one last topic before we kind of start wrapping up. I'm just sort of curious more about sort of the mechanics of the campaign you ran. So I remember doing a bit of research and there was sort of funding involved and like a crowdfunding situation. Mm-hmm. So can you, I guess, just go through a bit more about how sort of like say the funding of the campaign worked, sort of more about the, I guess, the nitty gritty of it all, if that's okay? So as I said before, I had a little bit of background in advocacy and in campaigning in the refugee space. So I came with a little bit of networks and background to it, but I didn't have an organisation myself. So, and with what I wanted to do, I thought Road to Refuge was best place to help me do it. They're a non-for-profit organisation based in Melbourne that helps refugees and asylum seekers tell their stories uh, on their own terms. So I sort of pitched my idea to them, which is to travel around Australia and to tell my story. To tell my story in a way that could affect change. And so they accepted my pitch and they wanted to help me bring that to life. The issue was resourcing and getting money to do it. We put a crowdfunder out and we asked people to to donate to it. So we were able to meet our target. So we raised just over $10,000 to help take me to different parts of Victoria to to tell my story to uh, metro and regional communities. So that's what's happened. And the, the way that it's worked, I've sort of partnered with Road to Refuge, but also other organisations, non-for-profit organisations that are also helping me you know, spread the word, connecting me with journos, giving me some media training, just supporting me in lots of different ways that 
uh, that, that I can take this on. And I've done this whilst working full time. So it was kind of really good to be able to almost sort of like handball the right. <laughs> the campaign to to others but but be be on board with it um, as well and it has really worked really well i'm really glad that there is an organization like road to refuge and there are other organizations in the space that are committed to helping people of refugee backgrounds tell their stories on their own terms to affect change and i've gotten lots and lots of support from these organizations like the asrc who've, who've helped me quite a lot and the refugee council of australia as well um, and, and lots of others that have um, helped me out. So it's kind of, yeah, like outsourcing in a way. <laughs> um, but it is, the, you know, their core business, so it's kind of like win-win to, to both of us. But I really do believe that there is a lot of power in, in sharing stories and in using stories to create change. And I think we saw a lot of that in the marriage equality campaign we see more of it in the United States than we do in Australia, I feel like, especially with like, for example, the gun control or the, the campaigns around that and with that recent shooting in the school and how you know, a number of the teenagers who were affected by it came out and spoke and how powerful that was. You know, we've seen it with Malala Yousafzai um, and how she t talks about girls' education from her point of view and from what she went through and the journey that she went through. And I think in Australia, we have a lot to learn from that and to use personal stories to affect broader change. So at the end of the campaign, what's the kind of ideal goal that you're working towards? And are you looking to, say, pitch to, to politicians as well in terms of looking at policy change? And if, if that is the case, what are you going to, to bring to them? In a sense that it seems like some of these politicians are very welded to their opinion and they're quite strident in terms of reflecting perhaps parts of their electorate think or that's yeah. their kind of argument. Yeah, so I was wondering what, what would you um, take to them if that's what you're going at? I have had a few meetings with politicians and it's definitely on the cards. I'm telling my story because I want to, to make change. Make change at a public discourse level but definitely make a policy change as well. The challenge there is that I don't have the resourcing to be able to do that. And unless I do, there's really no point in, in starting something that might not be as well done as you know if somebody else was to do it. So I'm sort of just waiting for that opportunity to come where I can have support, um, whether it be an, or an organisation supporting me or some other form of funding that I can take Meet FEDAC to a national level and attach and ask to it. So my initial thinking when I started the campaign was that to ask for a higher annual refugee intake. So to up their annual refugee intake from what we have now, which is uh, 13750 per year. And that's something that I'm definitely still uh, passionate about and still want to, to, to make happen. Yet it's just the resourcing issue that's 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 sort of prohibiting me from taking it to the next level almost. But it's, it, I'm working on that and hopefully I can, I can make it happen. At a political level, Labor does want to increase the intake and they want to double the intake, sort of be around just over 26,000 per year. And I'd love to actually make that happen and to support Labor in making that happen, but also to up it a lot more as well. There's lots of research to show that Australia on an annual level can take up to you know between 50 and 42,000 refugees per year. And, you know, different research says, says different things, but I think 27 or 26,000 is, is not a lot and that we can 
almost double that as well. But yeah, the challenge is actually getting politicians to do it. And the challenge for me is to bring it down to values and not to go into conversations talking about finances and the economy and, and resettlement processes and all that sort of stuff and, and to sort of just bring it down to the level of people and humanity and these are our Australian values and we need to live by our Australian values of helping people in need. So that, that's probably my challenge, is to, to go into those meetings with politicians and to bring it down to a values-based conversation rather than a, a numbers-based conversation, which is where they would want to talk about. But mm. as soon as they see that public opinion is concerned with bringing in more refugees and asylum seekers, then that's what's going to change um, their minds. Because at the end of the day, they want our votes. So, yeah. yeah. It's about mobilising the community. And I was wondering if, if you had any advice for, for young people that are listening out there who want to start a campaign about something, it might be any issue. Yeah, what's your advice for, for going about that? Because, you know, you've kind of done it on a quite a large scale. You've been out in the media, raised funding. What can a, a young person do? Should they be looking at what other campaigns are already out there and supporting them first? Or what's the approach, do you think? I think as a young person and what I've gone through is like we get really excited about creating change and we sort of we want to change the world and we have really idealistic lenses and how we see the world and that's just so good and I think that needs to be enhanced and captured. I would advise people that it, whether it be like the refugee issue or climate change or, merit or um, LGBTIQ rights or anything around there, I would encourage people to look at what exists at the moment and to... to be part of what already exists. And I say that because it gives you a really good perspective as to where the weaknesses and the strengths are of the campaigners and the advocates that, who, who exist already. So before you create your own thing or create your own campaign, make sure that you are really invested in the issue from different perspectives. So I think from different organisations or from different community groups, that kind of thing. And, and Try and see what the opposition thinks as well, just so that you can have all all sides of the story. And if you are you think you're at a position to create your own campaign or your own project, there is a lot of support out there for for people who are you know starting out. Whether it be like for example Australian Progress, they they help a lot of organisations you know just starting out. So make sure you have a look at what they do. And it would depend on the issue that of of your choice. And there are um, heaps of organisations that you can you know ask them to meet for a cup of coffee or um, going to ask for advice and pick their brain. I think everyone works tries to work together collaboratively so make sure that you uh, maximise those networks and always look after partnerships. Partnerships are important in the work that we do. Don't feel, you're not going to make change alone and you, you need others in the space to support you and be on board with what you're doing. And uh, we are sort of towards the end, so I guess a couple more questions before we formally wrap up. Um, now, is there anything you'd like to add at all, anything that we may have missed that you want to tell our listeners? Good, good. Uh, that makes sense. Cool. And then the final question is, um, I guess are there sort of any books, films or like sort of media in general that may have inspired you and that you'd recommend for any young people listening? I'd encourage people to read Behrouz's Bruchani's book. So he is someone who is detained in Manus at the moment and he writes from, interestingly, he wrote his book through WhatsApp, <laughs> typed and rated the book through, through there just because he I don't think there are other ways of communicating from the camp. But 
that, that's really inspirational. I encourage people to read. And in general, have a look at the advocacy that people in detention centres are, are doing and refugees in Australia are doing. These are the people who you should be taking um, inspiration and advice from. And these are the people who you would find the most inspiration and advice from.